Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Uh, Rob Fay here with Roman Sivkin in New York, as usual, and Heston Hoffman is producing our episode. And so we're still in our, our quarantine stretch here, as we'll be for, for quite some time. Um, and today we're, we're just going to have a chat about some of the books we're reading. And uh, I think like a lot of people, we're missing people. Uh, and that certainly includes, for me personally, Roman and Heston. And uh, so we're just looking forward to, to chatting a bit about what we're reading, um, kind of what we're thinking about. And, uh, you know, we're always uh, thinking about you guys as well and appreciate all the the back and forth on Twitter. So, you know, Roman, uh, you, you kind of said that we had been doing Robert Musil for for months and months and, and you're kind of officially sort of moved on. I, I know that you had yeah, yeah, trouble, trouble kind of like uh, <laughs> finishing up there. I, yeah, I just really had to uh, find a way out of Musil because it was a bit of a black hole. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, uh, so much material that we spoke with Janice and had such a lively conversation, which propelled me further into you know, to finish the reading and uh, finish reading uh, Janice's great critical book, which I really, really enjoyed. And so, and then, I don't know about you, Rob, but I always have these periods when I finish a major a book that's just really has changed my life in the way and and really you know a major piece of literature that I have consumed before in a small kind of in a small way and then consuming it in a large way by critically reading it together with people and then having of course a scholar join us so I always have after these intense reading experiences uh, a bit of a letdown and a bit of a Twilight Zone-ish kind of where am I in my life? Am I reading? I mean, the, the, the COVID thing is not helping with that strange feeling. It's just, you know, it made it worse. But I always feel a little bit rudderless and, yeah. and, and I don't know, kind of like reaching for a book here, putting it down, reading a few pages, putting it down. Um, I feel bad. I have this, this, these weird, almost like um, withdrawal symptoms or something, you know. I need something good to read and it's... And it usually isn't like a, I've, I've tried, I've tried to get back to my, what I used to do in my younger days is just consume books kind of regardless of, of my mood. You know, like I would just pick up a science fiction, good, good science fiction book or something, uh, you know, something that's not as heavy as, you know, Musil or Dostoevsky or something like that. And I would just enjoy reading it. And I tried doing it with uh, Station Eleven. I got maybe a third of the way into it. I was kind of into it, and then I just, I just couldn't do it. I just, after after literature with a big L, it's hard to go to literature with this, with a small L and and just and just let it ride. I just couldn't do it. So, yeah, and th- and this is the book by <laughs> Emily Emily Saint John Mandel, and, I, and yeah. I'm sure she, and I'm sure she would take no offense at, well, at I'm being. I'm sorry, Emily. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm, I'm sure she would. It's a good yeah. book, and yeah. you know, it's a it's a post apocalyptic book. There's a pandemic discussion in it, of course, and. Uh, it's kind of sort of relevant, but um, it's so hard for me to go back to straight prose, straight uh, narration, even if it's you know a little bit more fancy and just your you know basic nineteenth-century realist novel. Um, I, I just can't. I just literally can't nowadays return to reading quote-unquote regular books. I've tried, but I just can't. Yeah. So. Now, yeah. I told you I, I've moved on from Musil, but not very far because <laughs> I'm still with the Germans, man. I picked up uh, one of my favorite um, uh, sort of exper- experimental writers, Arno Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Arno Schmidt, who uh, had a publishing sensation a few years ago, uh, uh, the English translation of his um, Finnegan Wake, Finnegan's Wake type of book, uh, Bottom's Dream. Uh, which came out as like a 40-pound book. It's oversized. It's beautiful. I haven't cracked that, but I went back to an earlier novel that he wrote, uh, uh, actually one of the first novels that he wrote in his experimental style. It's called Moondocks Boondocks, and the M and the B are over each other, so it's really one word, Moondocks Boondocks. And Mm. it's two narrations, one taking place sometime in the 50s in in, uh, basically uh, the Boondocks in Germany, somewhere just, you know, farmland and and nothing there, just kind of uh, this arid landscape. Uh, and that's interspersed with narration from the moon. And it's now 1980. It's the future of the book. The book was published in the, what, 1960s, early 60s. So 
1980 in the book is the future. And there's a moon base run by the Americans and the Russians uh, that kind of, you know, split the moon in two. And uh, the reason why I'm really into this book, even though it's a little hard to read because of this experimental style, is because it's so much fun to read. Uh, he's punning everywhere. There's puns galore. He's definitely um, a devotee of Joyce. You know, he, uh, he started writing like this because of Finnegan's Wake. In fact, uh, Joyce is mentioned in the book. Um, so it's just, it's fun to read. It's a little hard to read at first because of, I don't know if, Rob, have you ever tried opening an Arnold Schmidt book? It's, uh, I haven't, no. It's not your English regular, I mean, the translator obviously is, is amazing. Uh, uh, so John E. Woods, uh, translated it. Um, I don't know how exactly, but he did it. <laughs> um, it's, he uses a lot of, um, interesting, uh, typographical, uh, uh, kind of squiggles and, and, and signs that he uses to sort of mimic uh, mental pauses, mental asides. Um, just, just, he just kind of throws the whole thing in there of, you know, of how we think consciousness-wise. But using these uh, you know, colons, semicolons, special marks, he uses a space spaces like uh, between the word and let's say a question mark uh, so it's just very idiosyncratic stuff that's only kind of you know i've only seen him do it in in this way but it's uh, it's just i just laugh pretty much on every page um again it's the translation which is i you know kind of weird because i'm sure it's better in german but the, i gotta give props to john john woods the translator who i believe just passed away recently um so it just brings me joy, this reading. I actually was was just enjoying reading it, as opposed to reading, let's say, Station Eleven, which was, you know, it's it's a plot-based book, but I'm just, I don't care about the plot. <laughs> I don't care about what happens to people in any kind of particular situation, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Uh, just give me prose that, that burns my brain in a good way, and, and I'm a happy yeah. Well, it, it sounds like, you know, I mean, I know the feeling, right, you cast, you're cast about after a, a very intense experience for something to, to replace it. And, and in your heart, you know, you, you won't immediately, you won't find anything to no, replace that. No, you so you, you have to find, uh, you sometimes it's good to, to take a bit of, no. yeah. Um, yeah, it's like having, I mean, you know, having an incredible house guest for a week and, and they leave and you feel incredibly sad. You can't just suddenly, you know. Uh, plug someone else into your house right. and say, you know, act like Roman <laughs> or something right. like that. Right. No, you can't. Um, but do you find yeah. yourself kind of depressed for like what you, these periods I, where you don't have a major reading that you're in a book that you're just enjoying that is speaking yeah. to you and well, then you're yeah. kind of in that between stage? Do you find yourself? I'm, I get literally. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in one. I'm in a very um, familiar pattern for me. And to speak to your question, I mean, basically, like you, I finished uh, my musical period. I think we talked about it. I wanted to read, um, you know, uh, prose. I wanted to read a book written by a, a native speaker of English. And so I went to British literature. I read Alan Hollinghurst. And then I went to Edward St. Aubin, uh, his new novel, Lost for Words. I love his Patrick Melrose um, series. And then from there, I went to Anthony Pohl. So that's kind of now, where Anthony I am. Pohl should, should pull you in like a nice, you know, yeah, got a nice gravitational pull that that should suck you right in and, and a give you plenty of uh, pleasure. Ab right? Absolutely. And, and so but here's the tricky part is so, you know, it's a 12 volume series. It was okay. his life's work, much as, um, you know, with Proust uh, in search of lost time. And so they've the publishers have over the years have broken the 12 books into four volumes, you know, three each. And so I, I went through the first volume and because I can't go to a bookstore as none of us can right now. You know, I've had to rely upon, and I've been using Powell's uh, to order books as much as I love Did them. Did you get Powell's Powell's? No. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I, I have to wait for volume two. And, and as volume two, as I've been waiting for it, you know, I'm in the mode that you're speaking of. You know, mm. what do I have next? What's going on? It's and, weird restlessness, right? Absolutely. You a little restless. You just like, and, and, and so I, I did what often, you know, uh, throws a wrench in any reading plan I have is I'm kind of waiting. I'm, I'm thinking about all sorts of other things as usual. I'm reading the news and I have to admit, I've become more curious about 
uh, economics. You know, what a surprise considering our current situation. And I had a book on my shelf, The Collected Letters of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a, a, oh, a, a wild star of an economist um, after World War II, a, a Keynesian uh, economist, um, I guess a quote-unquote liberal economist, someone who believed that labor unions and uh, regulation had a place. And so, um, you know, I, I don't have anything on my bookshelves really that's straight up economics except for this book, which was sent to me by a publisher a while back. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading his letters and, and they're good. So I'm kind of reading them. Uh, uh, it's on my nightstand. So I'm reading them uh, as I go to bed. And he was incredible thinker and he was in contact with all sorts of political, cultural uh, figures and, and stars. So it's very interesting. Mm. But again, not something I'm going to hunker down and, and read for hours on end. So I'm still casting about. Um, and I end up, you know, again, this is what I always do to myself. Uh, I've talked about my love of military history. So I find myself now really uh, fascinated with um, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, of all things. <laughs> um, a book, a book, by the way, that um, is a literary classic. You know, Gore Vidal said it's it's it deserves to be a literary classic in and of itself. It's written superbly. He was, um, uh, you know, a humble man, uh, kind of hid his. You talk about uh, Ulysses S. Grant, right? Yeah, I'm talking about the. the I, I thought he was a drunkard. Uh, he was a drunk guy who had, yes. had a very corrupt kind of. I mean, am I yeah. thinking of the right person? You are. So the fascinating thing about his career was, um, you know, you often hear about, um, uh, you know, people are misplaced in their life, and then suddenly a crisis comes, and you really see them shine. And, and so that was the case with him. He was a. Mm -hmm. uh, a very he hated he went to West Point as a young man. He was forced to go. He hated being in the army. He was involved in the uh, Mexican-American War, which he was vocally opposed to. He said it was a complete sham. Um, and he left the army after doing his his tour of duty, was a failed businessman, um, had problems with drinking. Uh, and then the Civil War began. He was, you know, he naturally uh, re-enlisted and, and was involved in that. But again, for most of that war, he was stationed out in the West, away from the action, drinking. And it wasn't until, you know, Lincoln got frustrated with his generals that, you know, he kind of thrust Grant into a position of power. And Grant, um, when it came to combat, was a, was a genius and a tactician and had a real... Uh, he closed the deal, right? He mm -hmm. knew how to win. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, basically in that final year of the Civil War, he kind of closed the deal and broke the back of the South. Um, and then, you know, so he was a, a, a celebrated hero, ran for president, you know, very much like Dwight Eisenhower after World War II, and uh, ran a horribly corrupt presidency, was an awful president, quite frankly. Um, right. That's, that's right. That's why that's my image of him as a, as a yeah. corrupt, horrible president. Yeah. And then uh, after he left the presidency, he had a, uh, several failed uh, business endeavors, uh, corruption, went into huge debt. And then he got very, very sick uh, in his early 60s, knew he was going to die. And he decided to bang out a two volume memoir of his experiences of civil war to think to care for his wife. And um he literally died days after handing the the manuscript off to Mark Twain, wow. who was was helping with this. Um, and the book became a gargantuan bestseller. Um, and his wife ultimately made something like eight million dollars in wow. our money in our money uh, from the proceeds of this book. Um, and the book is. It's, it's amazingly written. He was such a smart man. Um, and there's just no embellishment. It's really amazing just to, um, yeah. And, and he's, cool. he's, and he's very critical and anti-government at times. He's very critical of decisions that were made. As I said, um, uh, always thought the Mexican American war was a complete sham. You know, we wanted to, we annexed Texas and we wanted to secure, you know, our current border down by the Rio Grande and we provoked uh, a response from the Mexican army and then use that to, uh, yeah. the usual yeah. way. Yes. The yes. Usual, way. usual way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, so, so that's where I find myself, but now I have the second volume of, of Anthony Pohl. So you're going to go so, into that. 
I don't know. So I've got three books. I've got an economist letter. I have a memoir of a military general. And then I have uh, this, this, you know, epic uh, novel. Well, so if I can suggest, I don't know if you saw that. I, I think I tweeted you from our own account um, that there's a, <laughs> I've been, uh, since I've been kind of unable to really get into any major literature book, uh, I've been watching a lot of uh, philosophy kind of based YouTube uh, uh lectures and talks yeah. and i i've been really enjoying uh, this philosopher uh, british philosopher ac grayling uh he is such a fluent speaker and once you start i sent you this link for uh, he's talking he's talking about democracy and its problems so it's 2017 mm-hmm. the post-trump era mm-hmm. so uh, I would really recommend you watch this. It's about an hour. It's just so, but he's got this one kind of reminded me talking about uh, Grant as a president. He has this one beautiful anecdote about Adlai Stevenson, yeah. who you know ran uh, was it he was uh, running against Eisenhower, right, in mm-hmm. the fifties, mm-hmm. and you know uh, Adlai Stevenson is an was an academic, very intelligent man, right, uh, not your usual politician, and said one of his rallies. Um, Somebody started yelling, uh, Mr. Stevenson, you're every thinking American is going to vote for you. And, and, and Stevenson goes, well, that's wonderful, but I need a majority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, was, it was kind of a perfect kind of way of uh, summing up our problem uh, nowadays, you know. Yeah. With, uh, com- conflicting uh, closures and masks, no masks, you know. All the, yeah. All this, um, it is here that's going on right now. And, and, you know, Roman, that makes me think about, I, I think it's probably impossible for any of us to read anything and to not not mm-hmm. be constantly comparing it to what's yeah. happening now. Yeah. We're finding insights. There was, um, in the London Review of Books, there was a lead article on um, Camus' The Plague is, is in Europe, is selling... Uh, as if it had just been published. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, selling out, whatever that would mean in today's world. And um, so so clearly, you know, tens of thousands of people are, are their intellectual life is also plugged into what our current moment means because, it, because it's a current moment that um, really has no end in sight. And I think that's the part of that, that for all of us alive, none of us have been part of, you know, crises that go on for years you know i know that your you spoke about your dad was a young boy in leningrad and remembers you know playing uh with with playing around all of the uh yeah the, the, the destruction in, yeah, in, in yeah. what was leningrad and and, and so and trying to keep away from the german pow's which were uh, often housed in people's basements because they had no room to put them anywhere so they would like put them in like these apartment basements uh, you know apartment complex basements type of, type of deal and my my father actually remembers you know being warned, don't go to the basement, don't talk to anybody from the basement. Crazy. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Crazy. And and, yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, my uh, my wife's uh, parents who are who live in Japan, who are Japanese, they they were children and they remember um, eating nothing but oats and millet because all the rice was sent to the Pacific for the Japanese Imperial Army. Mm. And so so we have older people or people who've recently died who who went through like years of crisis but i think for most of it it's just such a weird idea we usually think of like the 9-11 type crisis where well, you there's know, that's, a that's interesting because that's actually why i think i'm also partly why i'm attracted to arnold schmidt right now because mm. he he came from that kind of scarring experience you know he was a soldier he was a german soldier in world war ii and he was a p. He was a um, he was a prisoner of war. He was a p. It was a POW. He was in a POW camp, I believe, somewhere in England, or I don't. Maybe not in England, but yeah, you know, he was basically a prisoner of war as well. So he came out of this whole thing absolutely scarred, and and you could see it in his writing. So I I think I'm relating a little bit to that that aspect of the book that I'm reading by him right now as well. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. War devastated Germany, and he's just so scathing about about the Nazis and how right. it, it's just so recent because, you know, I was writing this in the 50s, yes. late 50s. So very recent scar and it shows in all of his work really. But at the same time, it's funny. So, yeah. And, and um, because I think, I, I don't think, you know, we're, we're all puzzling and looking for answers. And it, obviously we're not looking for answers in the sense of like, you know, 
you know, why isn't the Trump administration testing enough? I don't right. mean that kind of stuff. I mean, no, like no. long term, deep questions about I mean, dude, I um, my dreaming has been far more intensive during the last two months. And I, I tend to be someone who remembers his dreams a lot anyways. But almost all of my dreams now have COVID themes. And, mm. and sometimes they're very subtle. Sometimes I'm, I'm standing somewhere in a public square and I start patting down my jacket for my mask and I can't find it. Or mm. I'm, I'm running to a, a freezer and I'm, and I'm making sure there's food in the freezer. Um, but, but the other piece that I, I have a lot of in, in my dreams are social distancing. So mm. um, in my dreams, again, the dream might have nothing to do with the current situation, but suddenly I'm talking to someone and, and people are coming the other way and I'm, I get anxious and we cross the street. And um, so I, I, I wonder how people who are how are in more pressing circumstances than me in suburban Oregon, uh, particularly you, for example, you know, I, I, mm. I mean, you can't social distance in a way that's particularly no. easy. And and you're yeah. you know you you mentioned your you know your family, um, their movements are far more restricted than they've ever been, and certainly more than people in Texas or Colorado or yeah. or some of those places. So, um, you know, so I'm I'm. I'm searching for answers. I mean, part part of my interest in in economics is to understand the what will be the mm. long term implications of this. What can governments do? And and it's really become clear to me that more than ever that um, you know government can can really do the kinds of things that can really help people. And that's yeah. I've always believed that, but now I see well, it AC as, clearly as, as clearly as possible. Rob, please watch this video. I think it really, really get a lot out of it. AC Grayling basically says, "Look, uh, we all we all have this understanding that politicians are, you know, not to be trusted. It's always been part of politics. However, recently, uh, politics has been weaponized in the you know in the sense of you know the Russian interference, uh, undecided voters being targeted without their knowing. You know, they're they're being targeted." Uh, for covert messages and messaging and that kind of stuff. So it's been weaponized. Uh, but he's, he basically says, look, we're never going to have this perfect government. That's, that's utopia. At least we're not going to, you know, this, let's not reach for that because it's, it's probably not going to happen. But we do deserve a good enough government. We need a government that works well enough. Yes, there will always be problems, but at least work, goddammit, you know, <laughs> work for people. Um, and he has a lot of interesting points. He goes back to Plato, of course, always Plato with democracy. Mm. Um, but the way he talks about it, uh, it's just really captivating. And uh, it, it's nice to hear somebody who's so freaking intelligent and so well-spoken uh, tackle these big issues. Um, and it gives you kind of a perspective. But also, Rob, uh, I, I know you're not a big poetry guy, uh, but we have noticed this, right? We have noticed that this during this crisis, people have been turning to poetry more and more. And actually, during these periods that I've been talking about where I'm between major prose works um, and I'm kind of flailing about, I usually also reach for poetry to kind of steady mm. me. Um, and I, I really want to recommend our listeners this. Harold Norris, I've been really into this guy for maybe three, four years Harold Norris is considered sort of a beat poet. He he lived in the Beat Hotel in Paris with Burroughs and Geisen and all those guys. In fact, he he's the one who convinced Geisen to publish his work. Um, uh, and the whole cut-up method that Burroughs is uh, uh, famous for, he was instrumental in, in sort of giving birth to that process as well. Um, and... He, I think he's known as a gay poet later on because he was part of the San Francisco Renaissance. And, um, but that's really, it's calling him a gay poet, I think, is doing him a disservice. He certainly is just a poet, just a really good poet. And so listen, this one poem, I, I was going to read it to you guys. Um, it's, uh, it, th th when I read it, it really, um, really spoke to me and to the moment that we're, li we're all living in right now. He, I think wrote this poem uh, right after Rachel Carson's book came out, you know, Silent Spring, uh, mm -hmm. which I believe we're all familiar with, that kind of gave birth uh, to the modern uh, environmental movement. And, and which was a part of the three-body problem, right? That was sort That's of right. a, a, a book right. that inspired, uh, yeah. 
Good call. Good call. So it's not a very long poem, but let me just read it to you because it just so spoke to me, and and I hope it will speak to some of you guys. It's from his collected uh, poetry, The Hub of the Fiery Force, or Fiery Force? Fiery. It's got to be fiery. Collected poems, 1934 to 2003. (laughs) This guy lived into well into his 90s, I believe. He knew Auden. He was friends with Auden. In fact, they were lovers at one point. Uh, he knew all the major poets of the 20th century, pretty much. He was friends with, uh, with Ezra, Ezra Pound, um, Ginsburg, uh, and famously, uh, he was also friends with, uh, Bukowski, uh, who, uh, who, uh, loved, uh, loved, uh, his poetry from early on and encouraged him to keep writing, um, and when, when they finally met, when Harold Nurse showed up at, uh, at Bukowski's place in, in Southern California and opened the door, um, you know, Harold Nurse is about five foot two inches, he's very short. And so <laughs> when Bukowski saw him, he goes, is that all there is? <laughs> <laughs> and they, of course, they became very good friends. But anyway, so here's the poem. These fears are not, uh, I'm sorry, these fears are real, not paranoid. I am walking in silent spring and mourn the loss of birds. I do not feel like a million. I feel like I've been hit on the head and robbed. I feel cheated. My cells are crying for oxygen. Each breath of air is deadly. I cannot trust water. Poets are jumping from bridges, dying of bad faith. Nothing seems true. Love seems impossible. Poisoners in high places shove death down our throats. My spirit is flagging. I want to crawl into warm, snug flesh and forget about these monstrous crimes, political crimes. Whom can I turn to? Did Rachel Carson live in vain? Oh, insecticide department, my life is yours. The display is homey and cheerful, with pickles and olives across the aisle, and the bath and laundry soaps adjoining rows and rows of insecticides. Which do you choose? Shall it be DDT for baby? Shall we anoint our skins with paint remover? These fears are not, these fears are real, not paranoid. Brain and nerve damage from homey sprays for the garden lawn and the American table would delight our Borgia. Oh, Zen masters, oh, positive vibrations, oh, flashes of beauty and starlight and swift flowing visions. My death awakes me and is my life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Really relevant as well. Um, it, uh, yeah, like, interesting. Me and is my life those two yeah. lines, and just really, I'm like, whoa, that's a little. Yeah, and, yeah. and and what was it? Po- poets jumping from bridge for lack of lack of faith. Lack of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what's the name of that poem again? In case people would like to find um, that. Online. I just closed the page, but it's page it's page one seventy seven. These collected poems is called. These fears are real, not paranoid. Yeah, I mean, that's very fitting for our times. Yeah. But um, I, I see that on Twitter, right? On bookish Twitter, you see a lot of people turning to poetry uh, as yeah. for these times. And I, I wonder if the fact that it's, um, you know, the, the, the length is also, because people are also complaining about a, a lack of concentration. Um, so the length is something you can just sort of say, yeah. okay, I, I can do this. I can, I can read two pages at the most or one page. Um, right. right. Yeah. Well, another good one. If, uh, this, this one stuck with me for maybe 20 years. I read it about 20 years ago. It's a haiku and I actually remember it. I don't, I don't remember who wrote it. I believe it's an American poet, not a Japanese poet, but it's a contemporary haiku and it's kind of sexy. Uh, how does it go exactly? Um, oh yeah. Letting my tongue deeper into the cool ripe tomato <laughs> <laughs> for, for some reason i thought i thought you were going to say melon i thought oh it was gonna no no we're close close yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know we're, we're just riffing here and uh you know another thing that feels timely and is i'm finding some solace in which i didn't mention at the beginning in terms of you know the many books i'm reading and half reading is um there was some excerpts in a recent uh, issue of Harper's of the occupation journals, which have just been published by Archipelago Books. And Roman, I'm so curious if you know this French novelist, uh, Jean Gino. 
Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, and, and you know who introduced me to him years ago and in the way that, in a pre-internet kind of way that, um, as you know, is, was always so precious when you would come across a recommendation and you would kind of track these people down was, I remember reading, um, and correct me if I'm not getting the title right, but was it the... Um, uh, Henry Miller, the 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 chronicles or the tales the, of Hieronymus? No, the oranges of Hieronymus Bosch. Did uh, I get that right? The oranges of Hieronymus. Big Sur, Big Sur, and the oranges of Hieronymus yes. Bosch. Yes, yes, that's and, when and, that's when he moved to Big Sur. Yeah, yeah. And what a wonderful book that was. Oh it, yeah. It, this is this is when Henry Miller had left Europe and he had returned home, and he. You know, he referred to the United States as what the air conditioned nightmare. Yeah, type of another book, yeah, which yeah. I think is amazing. But this particular book, after he had settled down in Big Sur, and again, this is this is the Bohemian Big Sur before it became, um, you know, the yeah, place, the the, the right. wealthy wealthy's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So this this would have been in the fifties, I think, when he was there, and so he had, you know, again, this kind of proto beat community of people and, you know, lovers and neighbors. And, and so the book is lovely because it, it just describes, um, you know, his, his sort of everyday life, but he continued to, um, make reference to this, this French novelist that nobody knew that everybody should know, Jean Genot, who, um, was a, um, almost a, like a naturalist, um, writer. He, he was from the Provence region, which is in the Southeast, um, you know, very, very beautiful, very rural. And he had this incredible, almost like Emersonian slash Thoreau sense of nature. You know, he, he mm -hmm. was um, almost like a, a, a pre-Christian pagan love of, of the wind and the birds and the trees and that kind of thing. So um, I read a bit of his novels. Um, I remember going to the Bookman Roman in Orange mm -hmm. um, right, at right. that time okay. and getting some, getting some novels. But um I ordered um, his occupation journals, which is the journals he kept um, from 1943 to 1944 when the Germans occupied all of France. Initially, they occupied Vichy France, which was the north, but then eventually they uh, expanded to the whole country, including Provence, where he was. And I found an incredible synchronicity with what we were all experiencing. He wasn't strictly in quarantine. But he he was obviously staying close to home. He's describing his routine. Um, so there's no more tobacco. So he's trying to grow tobacco in his garden. You know, his neighbor comes over and is like, do you have any tobacco? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and he's got, um, you know, young daughters he's taking care of. And in the background, he'll report about, you know, he heard artillery or mm -hmm. or the Luftwaffe flew over. And I found it incredibly similar to what, you know, I'm going through personally, there's, there's great danger outside of the house, out mm. in the world, but I'm not personally in danger. Um, I still have a job and I'm not sick and no one I know is sick. And so I found, I found it really comforting to hear about, I mean, essentially what he was doing was waiting out the crisis. You know, he knew eventually that what the allies would land in France and liberate France, he, he hoped. Mm. Um, but until then, what are you going to do? You you find your joys where you can. You, you gotta keep to on living. Things. Yeah, you gotta you yeah gotta, gotta find joy in your life because without joy, life is is just not worth living. You know, um, absolutely. So and, you gotta we gotta squeeze water out of a stone somehow. And and so um, you know, I was so into the book and I found it so relevant that um, uh, just a few days ago I wrote an email uh, to pitch an editor at a rather large magazine that will remain unnamed and hopefully they will um like the pitch and hopefully i can i can write an article about oh, my thoughts cross, yeah 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 absolutely about gino and the current situation uh, i like the henry miller connection but because henry miller is one of those guys that uh, that is also a joy to read uh but i i i am so curious it in the current um, environment where I think we are in many ways rightly more sensitive to the way, you know, women are treated and the way they're, they're often depicted in the culture. I, I fear that, that he is not in fashion right now. That's for sure. Yeah. But I, I, I feel that it would go beyond that, that he, he might even be, be sort of blacklisted or condemned. You know, again, I'm thinking, uh, of, I'm, I'm yeah, thinking he of, was such good friends with Anais Nin who loved his books. I mean, you know, it's just not, 
Yeah, he's a, he's definitely a macho kind of writer guy, but I don't know. He's yeah, and, and 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 for people who haven't read Henry Miller, you know, he he's he's known for you know almost soft porn, but that that is that is inaccurate. He he's an incredible writer. He, these are these are works of art. Um, Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, um, Black Spring. Um, yeah. Amazing, but books. he. But again, we're talking in the 1930s, and he was publishing these books in Paris, which um, you know would publish things that weren't allowed to be published in North America at the time. And so he writes uh, again, uh, Henry Miller, not as himself, but Henry Miller as this fictional uh, bon vivant, you know, going around Paris, and who um, you know was was had this sexual appetite that was uh, enormous and he and yeah, describes he was already in his 40s when he uh, yeah like late 30 or 40s when he actually moved to paris so he wasn't this 20 year old you know kid out of nowhere i mean he already had a whole life in brooklyn yeah. new york yes and then he came to paris with his brooklyn accent not knowing french or very little french and just like you know like a bull in a china shop he just he just made it work though because of his this incredible 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 um, life energy, inner inner energy. Yes, yeah, yes. like Picasso or something. But yeah. you can see, you can see these videos with with you know with him in his eighties. He still has this incredible vitality. Yeah. Um, so that's but, why I really still, I actually still really like uh, reading Henry James. I think I'm not Henry James, Henry Miller. Oops, oops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he yeah. What a, what, a, what a Freudian slip, Roman, because Henry James, of course, was asexual. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no penis whatsoever. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, you, you just start to you start to notice as the years go on that, I mean, no one writes about Henry Miller, which is it, which is a way of allowing a writer to which is a form of censorship. Right. In, in a way, when you just well, I, I think you ignore it's a writer. I think it's one of those who's in and who's out. I, I think Henry Miller has been out for a while. Uh, you know, people still read him here and there, of course. I mean, he's a, he's not a minor writer, um, but he's just not. That's it's, he's not in in fashion. You know, he's not uh, being rediscovered by anybody. He's not being written. You know. I think Erica, what's her Erica Young or Jong? I'm not sure how to pronounce her. Uh, I believe it's Jong. Yeah. Yeah. She's a big fan, right? Yeah, the, but but she was writing in the right, she wrote in the late '60s, right? When when I don't know, she wrote uh, a biography of him, I think. Relatively oh, really? recently. Okay. I think it was her. Yeah. So people are still trying. We, again, he's a major writer. By the way, I I did go to his um, library in Big Sur. I remember that. Yeah. In Big Sur a couple of times, and I, I tell that. you, it's impressive. It's just it's first of all, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um. Uh, so you can see why he loved it over there. Um, and uh, we stopped at this restaurant, I forget, the Phoenix or something like that. that it, was, it was this part of this complex of a house that was owned at one point by Orson Welles. <laughs> he used to live there. But the whole place is just, is just paradise on earth. I mean, I don't know why he left. I guess he left to go to Palisades, uh, Pacific Palisades in California, which is, yeah. which is also very nice. Because <laughs> yeah. he had money finally to do that. But yeah, Big Sur is just a, a magical, magical place to this day. Um, yeah, and it's hard, it's hard not to think of what it would have been like, um, you know, in the 50s when, when it was still not a, um, you know, a real yeah, estate, no, he, a real estate market. You Henry know? Miller had a shack on top of a mountain. He had yes. no car and he would have to go down uh, quite a few miles on foot or on bicycle. And then, and he would bring, he would bring like a little, um, what do you call this little wagon, you know, little kid's wagon type of deal with him. And he would just put groceries in it and, and stuff. And he would just haul it up in the mountain, just, just with a rope. <laughs> it was not an easy existence. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, that's also where, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti had a cabin. And of course he lent it to Jack Kerouac when he was trying to kick alcohol and, and Carrick oh, wrote oh, Big yeah. Sur. Oh, right, right, um, Desolation yeah. Angels, isn't that? <laughs> um, Desolation Angels was when, was his experience of uh, going uh, uh, to the Firewatch Tower in, in Northern Washington. Oh, that, right? was that was different. Okay, okay. Yeah, and, and so that's actually where many people think that Kerouac 
you know, became unhinged because he went up to the mountaintop without any, any liquor. And it was the first time he'd spent, you know, months without drinking. And he, he kind of had this idea that he would, uh, you know, have a, uh, enlightening, enlightened experience of Satori, uh, cause he was studying, you know, uh, Japanese and Buddhism. And what he found was, you know, the famous line from the book, uh, my mind is in rags. And he found that, um, he didn't like himself, that he felt uh, that mm-hmm. he was a failure. And uh, he came down terribly depressed from that experience. And he he hung out with, um, I think Ferlinghetti, you know, provided the cabin to try to try to revive him or help him. And that's actually when um, uh, On the Road came out and he became an instant celebrity in the middle of this depression. Oh, bad, he, bad, bad timing. Yeah, exactly. And then he, you know, he threw himself into the celebrity part of it and that's got further lost and yeah. you know, a real tragedy um no, yeah. no two ways about it no for sure for sure i mean who who knows what you could have done without slipping into alcoholism you know so. yeah like a like a real you know like speaking of henry james you know like like late work you know um yeah or or beethoven i mean i'm, I'm not comparing kerouac to he wasn't he wasn't at that level of a writer, but he had the goods, and yeah. he could have, he could have gone further. Um, you know, Roman, not to go too far on Kerouac, but you at one point, I'm trying to remember. We as kids, we had read all the principal books, whatever the Dharma bums or on the road, and then somewhat like probably ten years later in our late twenties, you recommended. I think it was the Vanity of Delawas. It was sort of yeah. like his memoir of like, it, it, it wasn't, you know, it was a more conventional book, but it was about his experience like in high school. And then he went to a prep school in like New York. And then it, it really focused on his like before he met Ginsburg and Burroughs at Columbia. And it was such a, it was such a, a, a lovely uh, remembrance of being an adolescent of, of, you know, you're talking about those, those endless afternoons when you read books and you kind of dreamed and it, there was, it was a lovely book. It really brought me back to, you know, being 15, being 16, some of the good parts of that, that era, which, Mm. you know, many of those years weren't that great for me, but, um, you know, and, and yeah, it was a lovely book and I, I resisted reading it, but, um, I think you read it, Shortly after you you moved to California, maybe I, I'm trying to piece it together. Yeah, I don't remember exactly when. I think. I but think you was, you know the novel I'm talking about. Uh, I think it was. I'm trying to find it right now online. I think it was Visions of. No, it wasn't that Visions of Gerard. Vision? No, I think it was the Vanity of Delawas, right? And he, um, Delawas was his sort of fictional character. Um, that you know he had this idea of doing what Faulkner had done uh, with his, you know, fictional county in, in Mississippi. Oh, okay, 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 yes. It's funny, I just don't remember this particular book. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, I, I, I recall you saying, you know, this is one you might have overlooked, and I, I stumbled upon it, and I... I um, yeah, that's when, he, that's when he was disenchanted and, and suffered from alcoholism already for several years. It was 1967 that he wrote that book. Which book is this? The one you're talking about, The Vanity of Dulawas. Interesting. So he read that he wrote that late in life about his yeah. earlier life. That's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so we've 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 got a, down a silo of the it's, beats. A well, bit, but, speaking of yeah. speaking of yeah. the beats, man. I mean, uh, Gary Snyder's ninetieth birthday was just recent. I know. If, and uh, and and of course, Pearl and Getty's still alive. Isn't it just a, a bit of a trip just to, to think these guys are still around? It's remarkable. And uh, you know, Heston lives um, about a stone's throw from Reed College, where um, Gary right. Snyder went to college, and, and where um, John Cage taught for a while, and where Steve Jobs uh, said, "Screw this!" After I think one semester, <laughs> Steve Jobs said, "I have uh, I have other plans." Yeah, the acid did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, man, Gar- Gary Snyder, he, um, if I recall, he, he grew up in Southern Washington and then he went to, his family moved to Portland here. Uh, he went to high school in Portland and his first experience that really solidified his, his connection to nature was um, going up to Mount Hood and doing a, um, 
hike up Mount Hood, and he, you know, he had just uh, thrown together some army surplus uh, uh, jackets and gear and kind of went up there. And that's when he was like, wow, this somehow uh, the outdoors has to be a part of my life. And, and so, um, yeah, and he's what, he's one of the guys that, that brought together for me, literature, the outdoors and, and Zen Buddhism, right. Which have all, yeah. all been a part, part of my life. Such a, uh, such at a various part of our DNA, both of our DNA really. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember when you, when you came to visit me in Oregon, uh, about a year ago, I remember we took a hike in Forest Park and I could not, I had forgotten how deeply, wedded to nature you are uh and for our listeners i could barely get him through the hike because roman kept stopping at every fern every tree and 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 just saying you know i, I was stunned dude I, I i guess i after you know years of being in the concrete jungle of la and then new york i thought well you know he's an urban guy you know but no you're not <laughs> well i that's because I, because I was coming from such an urban environment and suddenly being in the in the you know the, the ancient trees you know around me, uh, it really affected me, man. I mean that those couple of hikes we took, um, I so enjoyed them. And again, it's a big difference for me. You know, coming from New York, from Manhattan, from Queens, Astoria, all these you know, no trees anywhere or very few, and then suddenly to find yourself in this primeval forest. I mean, I was like a kid in a candy store, you know. Um, I, I was, I, just, I was really impressed. And then I remember you, you, you had mentioned, uh, uh, a book about how trees, there's been some research that, um, you know, trees communicate as a community if there's a threat or, right. The, uh, the famous worldwide wood, <laughs> <laughs> worldwide, wood. <laughs> worldwide wood. Yeah. It's, it's, a. Uh, it's a, it's by now it's kind of an old concept of it. It's been around for a while now, but, uh, I think the secret the Secret Life of Trees is one of the books I was referring to. Yeah. Um, you know the whole. Plus, you live in Oregon, man, with the, with that mycelium, uh, the huge mushroom creature thing that lives underneath you. That's the biggest single organism on the planet, it's bigger than any whale for sure. Um, and, and and you live kind of right on top of it. And and dude, I, I have to say, I mean, it's it it almost becomes a kind of Portlandia type of joke. But like, I've run into several people, you know, coworkers, and like, like, so you know, what are your hobbies? Oh, well, uh, I collect mushrooms on the weekend. <laughs> I mean, it, it it's almost like I, I, I I'm no longer surprised when that's a principal hobby of someone I meet. Well, because you are in in the in definitely a mushroom rich area, shall we say? <laughs> There's a lot of fungus around around this or around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh, let's not forget. Uh, since we were talking about the the beats, man, we got a Michael McClure died recently. Was oh, it? is that so? Too. Yeah, major, major uh, beat poet. Um, it was a little sad to see. I think, I think it was a stroke. I don't think it was COVID. But who knows? Nowadays, it could all be related. Yeah, of um, but he was, I believe, in his eighties. So he's lived a, a nice long life. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I I I don't know, man. I still I'm still looking for something. I mean, I'm I'm gonna finish Moondocks Boondocks by Schmidt, um, but I'm I'm still finding myself. I need some some. I mean, some classic to me. I need something classic. I need something that's that's definitely stood the test of time, but also has uh, prose that I can stomach right now. I mean, I have have you? Um... I mean, uh, considering the way you're reading, the obvious person would be Thomas Mann. I, and I don't know how deeply you've you've uh, explored I, that territory. Here's my problem with Mann. And I blame the book of I blame the book of for all of my faults, by the way, my, my literary. Faults, <laughs> because I was so influenced by old VN, old McNabb from my early, you know, my early 20s, my really my late teens to my all through my mid 20s, I, I just immersed myself in everything Nabokov. Uh, and he did not have, he did not have a, a positive uh, view of Mon. So that kind of ruined it, ruined Mon for me a little bit right from the get go. Uh, I did read the Magic Mountain. I kind of sort of enjoyed it. What I really enjoyed because I think mostly because I didn't understand it, it was uh, Dr. Faustus, which I read yep. when I was 16, way too young to read that book. Um, but it, it really gave me a taste of uh, something that I wanted to pursue. 
And so I kept pursuing it. But again, after Nabokov, I was like, oh, man, Thomas Mann, that old guy. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I did read The Magic Mountain afterwards and kind of sort of enjoyed it. And I also have, you know, I have these wonderful, um, a friend of mine who is now unfortunately very sick. He's actually a friend of my parents. Uh, he's a Russian dude, a chemist by profession, I believe, or a mathematician or a mathematical chemist or something like that. Uh, but he, you know, he, he was very bookish guy. He is a very bookish guy. In fact, he writes his own books about uh, the Middle East conflict and stuff like that uh, in Russian, but he lives in America. He gave me uh, these wonderful translations of um, uh, Joseph, uh, uh, Joseph in Egypt. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know, are you aware of these books by Thomas Mann? Rob? No, no, no. Those are the books that he wrote towards the end of his life. Uh, they're, uh, kind of mythopoetic, biblical type of tales um, of Joseph. Uh, uh, and they're multi-volumes. And he gave me this Russian translation. He said, do not read the English translation. It's horrible. Mm. This, this is going to get you as close to the German as you can. Um, and so I have them. And I'm thinking at some point, perhaps I will crack them. But the prob problem is my Russian is really not up to par right now. I haven't read anything in Russian in a while. Since yeah. Dostoevsky, in fact, that we read for for the podcast, mm. um, so I might tackle that, but it's it's going to be hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's Thomas Mann in Russian. <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, I I um, you know, one thing that stuck with me, I, I saw um, probably about a year and a half ago, is Francis Ford Coppola spoke in uh, in Portland, and you know, he stressed how he always saw himself as a writer, as a as a screen screenwriter. Mm. Before a director, you know, he he wrote the screenplay for uh, Patton, you know, before he did Godfather, and and so he had he had some real credentials as a writer, and he um, for him the greatest uh, literary work he's ever come across was Buddenbrooks, which mm. is uh, Mann's Chronicle of you know this, this early one of his earlier books. Right? Yeah, German yeah. Merchant Family, and he, and he said that you know he returns to it again and again, um, and then I also recall. Um, uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, produced in the 1980s, a, um, a biopic of Yukio Mishima, the, the great Japanese novelist and, mm. um, really worth checking out if people haven't seen it. It's called Mishima and it's told. Yeah, how come we haven't heard about this? What's going on? It, it came out in the eighties. Um, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, it's a really, uh, artsy yeah, but biopic think Spielberg, you know, Spielberg film we'll, we'll know about. We'll well, he, he wasn't the director. He was, uh, oh. like the producer or something, but the, the really, the, the, I actually came across it because Philip Glass, uh, did the soundtrack. So, I mean, it's got really interesting contributors. And so it, um, it's sort of like, uh, f the film is broken into four seasons, you know, spring, summer, blah, blah, blah. And it goes through the various periods of his life. Um, but I, I remember there's one scene where he's already, you know, super famous in Japan and, you know, the, the press, he became a, a, you know, a darling of the press because his unusual political activities late in life, he became this sort of um, right-wing fascist type guy, basically. Mm. Um, but he... Um, he was at a press conference and he, he was kind of doing the Bob Dylan thing. Like he doesn't want to answer any questions. And it's finally some reporters like, you know, who is the master for you? And he just said, man, and he just looked straight ahead, you know? And I thought, ah, oh, so, so Yukio so Mishima. There's a few mons. Yeah. I know I, I, it was, it was Thomas Mann. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, yeah. So I, I've been circling around him for a bit and I, I, you know, again, in this master plan in my head that that assumes I'll live till ninety and and have lots of time to read, that well, I well, will. You, you you will definitely enjoy the Magic Mountain. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the book to read. I think first because yeah, well, or at least Death in Venice is a novella, smaller, smaller work. And actually, I really did enjoy that book. Um, I just yeah, I have problems with Mont for some reason. Again, I think they're they're stupid problems. They're not real problems. They're just psychological hangovers from my <laughs> reading of, of Nabokov, you know. And once isn't that weird that once you have this established this kind of prejudice, it's it's so hard to root it out. Yes. Even though rationally you might say to yourself, Well, let me read him yes. and decide on my own. Um, but it's not exactly a rational thing. It's just like, well, this kind of this same thing. It's funny, the same thing. I developed the same thing from the book of this distaste from the book of 
based on literally a single line from David Markson. Mm. <laughs> you know, when he calls Nabokov's prose erzatz. And I'm like, yes, yes. I was, I was like, kind of wondering what the hell has been bothering me about Nabokov. Why can't I reread him? And like, yes, that's it. It's, it's, it's really pretty prose that he just really beautifies you know, to the last little period in his bath, writing on these little notes, note, note cards that Nabokov used to compose his books. And it struck me as like, yes, see, that's just too pretty. It's just too refined. It's just, I, I want my prose to be a little bit more, yeah, uh, you know, in your, you know, in your face, kind of in your guts, as opposed to just this aesthetic, just pure aesthetic, uh, you know, a hundred percent, you know, no additive step of deal. You know, but, it, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny. We, we, um, that, that might be a good topic for, uh, for an upcoming episode, you know, uh, prejudices against yeah. certain <laughs> authors i you know um to go back to jean gino so I, i'm reading through and, and and many of his journal entries are um at, at that time he was really studying um stendhal and in his praise of stendhal was you know endless so he was just you know th this is the master for him and um mm -hmm. And it's hard to argue with that. And and then he's comparing him to you know Balzac, and he's reading the Human Comedy, and and he's finding that Balzac you know doesn't um, doesn't quite match up to Stendhal. But then there's a passage where you know Heston, if you're listening, you'll probably have to chuckle, where he, um, he you know he compares Dickens you know to both of them, and just finds Dickens to be you know, he, he can't understand why anyone likes Dickens. He's, you know, <laughs> the, these, these, you know, silly characters and these silly names and, and these, the sort of, um, you know, the, the, whatever he, he, he yeah. went on a rant and, and I, I kind of smiled. I think I actually tweeted it out. I was so pleased that like someone, someone else I greatly respect also was kind of, well, you, you tend to latch on to these opinions that, that confirm your, your opinion, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, yeah he hates him too. Yes. Yes. He gets me. Yes, <laughs> or she, for that matter. <laughs> but but that's a um, you know. There's another life project is um, from from what I've read of of Balzac in terms of flipping through some of the volumes and you know the the human comedy. I I I have to assume the translations are poor because I I just start flipping through and I and I know that French prose at that period pre-Proust was valued for its, its precision, its conciseness, right? This is, um, this was a virtue of, of French prose, um, at that time, but I, I haven't, I, I don't know what people are, what they're finding. I mean, from what I understand, it's this, um, you know, presentation of, of like the entirety of French society at the time. I mean, incredibly ambitious to, to portray, um, you know, from generals and society ladies down to, you know, beggars and urchins. And, um, well, uh, have you, have you cracked? So that, that's worth checking out. Have I, oh my goodness. Um, I mean, Madame, a bed of Bovary is, is, um, you know, and Heston will, we'll, what? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll smile as well. I think along with, um, uh, the, you know, the great Gatsby, I think it's one of those novels that is perfect. And how's your French? Is your French good Perfect. enough to attempt it in French? My my French is it is a uh, a learning exercise to try to read novels in French. It's it's well, this this could be a perfect opportunity, Rob, because this is yeah. like I would like give my left arm to be able to read Madame Bovary in French. Yeah, uh, first I could learn French, but I'm too lazy to to do that, so I'll just cut off my <laughs> left arm. Um, but yeah, why don't you just get uh, the French edition and put I have it next to I have it. it and then On you start shelf. eating it that way. I mean, that's the, that's the, one of the best ways to get into a, a foreign language novel. If you have a little bit of a basis, you know, basics of the language, you just have I the have translation it. and the original and then you go back and forth and you read. It's on my it's on my shelf, and I have I have started. I've I've started doing that. The first uh, you know ten pages of uh, Madame Bovary are are all marked up, but you know the the um, I, I keep finding it's just a question of you know with an intensive full time job and some yeah. writing writing ambitions and a podcast and you you have to you have to pick your battles and I've I've sadly started to feel like French proficiency might not be in the cards for this lifetime, perhaps. No, Rob, just keep going. Just keep going. So, you know, take one step at a time. Don't have to jump a, a mile ahead. Just one step at a time and you'll get there. You know? 
Rob, can you hear me? Yeah, no, I'm I'm uh, I'm in a reflective, melancholy mood. About yeah, my French <laughs> ambitions. <laughs> um, yeah, it reminds me of that um, that book that I, I I I saved only two books from my college bookshelf. You know, the, the ones I actually bought while it, while in college, all these low these many decades ago, um, and one of them is. Uh, um, uh, the ignorant schoolmaster, which I believe I've talked about on this book. Uh, oh, this, I you know, know, I know it well. Intellectual emancipation, and it's and one of the major themes of the book is how to, how to how to teach something that you don't know yourself. And yes. uh, with foreign languages, I guess this, uh, the suggestion is you know, have the translation and have the original, and you just go back and forth until you start understanding it. And uh, you don't have to understand French to assign somebody, say, okay, here's Madame Bovary in French, here's it, here's in English, and you learn French, go go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there's a um, uh, famous 20th century um, Hungarian polyglot who knew like, you know, 25 languages, and she worked for the UN. And so she's, um, she's put out, you know, um, you know, how, how did she do this? What's her approach? And, and you're absolutely right. She, she continues to say, look, for the most part, you know, when I'm learning a new language and, and she's the kind of person who will be like, okay, what, what language do I not know yet? Okay. I don't really know Flemish. So she'll just turn to Flemish and she'll be like, you know, I'm, I'm living in Budapest. I don't really have access to Flemish speakers and I don't have, this is, you know, 1972. She doesn't have access to Flemish speaking television or the internet, obviously. And so she said, all I have is I can get a Flemish to Hungarian dictionary, and I can get a novel in Flemish, and um, that—that's—that's that's how I start. And then I have, that's, and, and that's I don't have she, to depend on anyone, right? And that's how she started the Feeling Flemish uh, podcast. <laughs> the Feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and and oh, you know, for all our Flemish friends out there, we 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 appreciate your patronage. Yes, yes. Please review us on your Flemish uh, Google site. I, I know things have been harsh being stuck between, you know, Belgium and Holland all those years. Yeah, talk about a quarantine. Gee. I know. My goodness. <laughs> you, you think the Kurds have it bad? I mean, the Flemish. Come on. Um, I don't know, man. So, so this has been, you know, we've just, we've just talked and we've just wrapped and uh, it's been fun. It has been fun. It has been fun. Uh, if anybody has any ideas uh, for me, as far as what to read next, uh, I need a, a good, dense novel, uh, a la Thomas Bernhardt, uh, Arno Schmitz. You know what I could probably do, though, Rob? I, mm. I appreciate the suggestions, but I think I really need to go back to, um, come on, brain, uh, Peter Handke. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, he just won the Nobel. Yep. Uh, I've read um, Slow Homecoming. Uh, which impressed the hell out of me. Um, and I think I've started something else, but didn't get a chance to finish it. But in any case, I, I'm really impressed with this guy. And I think I might, I might do something, uh, something with him next. But yeah, any yeah. suggestions, please, uh, at Zanju on Twitter for me. I would love suggestions for you know, something just dense, existential, and funny at the same time. It's a tall order, I know. Yeah. Um, maybe Peter Handke is not funny. Um, but Arnold Schmidt is funny. How come nobody writes like Arnold Schmidt? What's going on? How come, how come nobody writes experimental fiction that is also fun to read, as the blurb goes here in the back of the book? It's fun to read, but it's also experimental. Nobody does this. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the, the, the short answer is just the, the business realities of publishing today. I think that's, that's probably the easiest answer. Um, the, well, we're all the poorer for that. We're all yeah, no, for sure. Um, but, you know, um, uh, one thing I just want to uh, let folks know is that um, I think our, our, our basic plan is in the fall. I mean, I think we do want to get back to having some guests on and also, you know, uh, podcasts that center around, you know, books that Roman and I are psyched about. But I, but I think, you know, frankly, for a while, um, we're kind of uh, reading widely. Um, and so we might just have some podcasts where we kind of update folks on what we're reading. Yeah, but, um, and we'd also, yeah. I think, I think I'm just throwing it out there, Rob, I haven't even talked to you about this. Uh, I hope it's okay with you. But wh why not, like, you know, if you guys have any ideas, if you have any questions, or if you want us to cover certain topics, um, 
it's not exactly like we're experts, you know, but we're just two brains that have read a lot, and that's it's always a good thing. Um, well, actually, three brains, Heston, sorry about that, man. Um, so, you know, just shoot us anything on Twitter, anything, any kind of topics, any any questions, any concerns, uh, suggestions are always welcome. Um, we'd really appreciate that, Rob. Right, Rob? Yeah, for sure. Get yep. a little engagement with the community. And, and again, I think um, if you can give us a, a, a star rating uh, in Apple Podcasts, this this just helps with um, with more. Um, it highlights the podcast uh, more with other literary podcasts, and so um, you know we'd appreciate that. Uh, we we certainly, you know, we want to get more people involved in in the discussion. So um, that's about it. Yeah. So so we'll maybe we'll wrap it up there. Um, at feel bookish is 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 our Twitter handle. So reach out to us, as Roman said, with suggestions for books or 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 topics. And that's about it, Roman. Um, you know, continue to stay safe in New York. Um, you know, thinking about Ariana and Rebecca, and um, you know, same goes to to Heston and Bethany here in the Portland area. So yeah, that's catch it. some of that sun. Catch some of that sun. Vitamin D is good. Good for yep. us, right, people. This pandemic all right we'll talk all right to guys you then talk later bye-bye bye-bye